The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. That was quite a, an explosion of social energy. <laughs> and maybe that's quite fitting. I thought it'd be nice to talk tonight um, about retreating and its role in how the Buddha sort of understood our lives as human beings. And, uh, you know, especially, it's kind of an interesting phenomena, unusual in the history of Buddhism, what's happening in the West. Of course, there are some Buddhist monks and nuns in the West, here in, in the States and other Western places. But the predominant expression of Buddhist practice here in the West is like this, right? lay groups like we are here. And uh, so that's a relatively new thing in the history of Buddhist, Buddhism. I mean, there have always been, of course, lay people. Not everybody's monks and nuns. But they were sort of the keepers of the practice. And lay people would support the monks and nuns. They'd be devotional. They'd be supportive. But generally speaking, they wouldn't do a lot of the practice themselves. That was the business of the monks and nuns, to meditate, to develop the heart, to become wise, kind human beings, to become teachers, to become more free in life. And the the general, I mean, this is a bit of a stereotype, but the general attitude for the lay people was something like, it wasn't in the cards for me to be a nun or a monk, so the best I can hope to do is to support those who had the good fortune to devote their life to practice, right? So here in the West, it's a little bit different. It's more of a lay scene, the people who are interested in Buddhism for all kinds of different reasons, and things will probably change, maybe, maybe not, but this is how it is right now. And so the the thing about when it was dominated the kind of expression of Buddhism, this, these practices dominated by nuns and monks, it became, you know, it was pretty obvious that this ethic, this valuing of renunciation and simplicity and retreating from duties and responsibilities. I mean, the archetype of a nun or a monk, you know, they shave their head. And the interesting thing about shaving your head, there's probably a few people, purposefully or not, <laughs> have shaved heads, and uh, it, it sort of uh, it strips away a lot of identity. It's interesting how much identity is tied up in hair, right? We kind of express ourselves to, to, you know, to some degree by how we have our hair. Even if it's just sort of a casual mess, that's our expression. And so to take that off. And then the other thing is even the nuns and the monks, they dress alike. You know, they got basically three robes, tie a little skirt around their waist, they've got this robe they throw over the shoulder, and then they have an extra robe when it's cold. I mean, that works in the tropics. And so they, their hair looks the same, and they wear the same garb, same color garb, right? So it sort of depersonalizes the person to a large degree. And they're celibate, right? So nuns and monks take a vow of not expressing, they're still sexual beings, of course, can't do anything about that, but the vow is to not um, 
outwardly express sexual attraction, sexual activity. And they eat one, usually just one meal a day, or they have a little meal early, and then the main meal, like at 11 o'clock. And then, traditionally, they wouldn't eat a meal afterward. This, these were the rules, the etiquette at the time of the Buddha for the monks and nuns. It still continues in this lineage of Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, that's basically followed to a large degree. Can't have possessions, can't store food. So that means every day they're dependent on somebody offering them food, can't even ask for food. And then part of the ethic, too, was that you wander. So the whole idea of monasteries is sort of a, a relatively new phenomenon. I mean, there were even at the time of the Buddha, there were monasteries, but you weren't really expected to stay in one place, unless you were sick. You know, you might stay during the rainy season one place for several months. But then generally, you'd show up somewhere, you'd stay there for a week or two, and then you'd wander to another town, you'd stay there. So that a way of uh, undercutting attachments. And even in terms of friendships, I mean, you might develop very close friendships, but we wouldn't sort of make a pact, hey, let's wander together, Morris, you know, you and me. And we'd stay together for years at a time. One of the elders might say, you know, you might just experiment by going different ways. So it's like a very powerful monasticism. It's a very powerful symbol of renunciation. So here in the West, lay people practicing, you know, we don't have, I mean, we have a common ground monks visiting maybe three or four times a year. Uh, Nuns are monks visiting three or four times a year, but not that regularly. But we have these things called going on retreat. In a way, it's in a funny way even, it can seem a little cultish, you know, as those of you who've been around in conversations with other people who've been around, what do common ground people talk about? What do people in this style of practice talk about? Well, have you gone on retreat? How many retreats have you gone on? What is the longest retreat you've been on? You know, and we tell sort of our war stories, you know, the hard moments, the difficult moments, the crazy moments, the beautiful high moments. You know, it's like we compare notes. In the same way that other people might talk about their latest vacation or their latest purchase. What else do other people, the, the other people, you know, the other people? <laughs> what did they talk about? Yeah, relationships. You know, we talk about retreats. And we also talk, can sort of get into, like, my simplicity is bigger than your simplicity. <laughs> You know, I only have three shirts or, you know, whatever it might be. My house is such and such square feet. My car is not capable of driving faster than 50 miles an hour. (laughs) You know, it's like, as opposed to these, you know, amazing vehicles. So we can kind of get into this. But there's really, there really is something to using the form of simplicity. It's like a skillful means to understanding something about the mind, something to take out. And the important thing, and this is where it gets a little weird, is just because something is a skillful means doesn't mean we should get in the habit of condemning the opposite. So like, if we find real value in putting aside a half a day once a month to shut our cell phones off, 
to stay at home, to sit a little bit, and basically to explore simplicity, explore, you know, it's not so much about not doing anything, because that, that's actually not possible. You know, like even if you're just sort of sitting on the couch, you're doing something. So it's, but it's, it's really about um, the strategic abandoning of duties and responsibilities as a weight on the mind and heart, putting it down for a while. It's a very interesting exploration. Some of you know that Common Ground, a while back now, I think it's, boy, maybe four, four years at least now, purchased a really beautiful 46-acre farm in western Wisconsin. That means we all own it, right? We're a nonprofit, so nobody, there is no owner, right, except the community itself. So we have these acres, and there was an old... Uh, furniture-making um, building. It's a big like pole barn building, about 5,000 square feet, built by an Amish family. Not even that long ago, in the 1990s, late 1980s, early 1990s. And they built furniture. There were like 12 kids in their family. Lived there for a while and then sold it to a couple artists, ceramists. And they, had, uh, they made pots and plates and bowls and stuff there. And then uh, another couple with their kids lived there for a while, and they sort of lived off of the land, mostly at least, had an amazing garden. And then we purchased it from that couple four years ago, and we're in the process of developing it. We've raised some money and jumping through the hoops with the state to get our building permit and expect to start doing the renovation in July now. We're getting pretty close to digging in there. But, you know, it's, it's quite an investment for the community all of us to do that. And not only that, but we have four or five residential retreats and there are other kind of sister organizations to Common Ground that also organize residential retreats where we bring in outside teachers, Buddhist teachers. There are many other places that people in the community go to go on retreat. Some of the places that I teach, like IMS, Insight Meditation Society of Massachusetts. I think I've probably been on retreat in this place in Massachusetts, two years of my life. You know, if I added up all the different retreats I've been on, just in that one place in Massachusetts, let alone some of you, I've been on retreat at Spirit Rock in Northern California. And there are many other retreats in our kind of lineage, and many of us have also practiced in Asia, including, for me, five months as a, as a monk in Burma. So what is this? this sort of strong ethic, strong value about retreating, about exploring simplicity to the nth degree and what it reveals about our mind. I mean, you can, even if you've never even begun this exploration, you can even use in your imagination, like if you did shut your phone off and didn't use electronic devices, no radio, no TV, no computer, no books, you know, and you're just there in some relatively uncluttered room in your home or somewhere else, just you and your mind. <laughs> What's the first thing we're going to notice? How much the mind wants to fill in that space. Like, at the very least, we're going to want to tell somebody, call somebody, have a conversation about how hard this is. 
Or if it's not initially hard, how wonderful this is, you know, to not have the kids around or to not have the cat around or, you know, not to not have my to-do list around or whatever it is, you know. But just to learn to be in that space where we get a chance, the awareness in the mind gets a chance to observe what's in motion in the mind, heart, and body. Because there's a, I guess you could say, we could say there's a lot of unfinished business stuff that's been set in motion in our mind. I mean, we see this at night when we dream. Where do, you, where do we think all our dreams come from? Right? It's stuff that's in motion. right? And then when we're sleeping, we don't really have a defense. We don't have any way to prevent whatever is unfinished, whatever is in motion to kind of present itself in the space of the mind. And we have a dream. Same with our fantasies and thoughts and obsessions that we have during the day, during our waking time. And then when we're on retreat, when we've put aside some simple time where we don't have duties and responsibilities and we don't have easy distractions to kind of fill up the space of the mind, well, then we see what's in motion. And, as you might imagine, it's not always pretty. Right? Unfinished, unresolved pain, grief, unresolved grief, unfinished grief, grieving, um, burning resentments that maybe we haven't seen for a while because they've been buried. It's a little bit like a vacuum. You know, we create a vacuum and then whatever is available to fill in that vacuum, to enter into that vacuum, will, right? So if, if there are unfinished wounds or whatever in our heart, in our mind, aches in our body, they come front and center. And now the mind's less distracted because there's just less going on. And so whatever shows up seems, in a sense, it's amplified by the silence or by the relative simplicity of our environment. I don't think we can really say enough about how this supports practice. And you may be someone who will never go on a formal Buddhist meditation retreat. You know, we have day longs every month. We have half days every month. We have the June practice intensive coming up. There's handouts um, both under the bulletin board and on the table to the um, near the stairwell. So you can take one home, and it explains. We do it every June and every December. It's just 17 days or so. It starts on a Monday, ends on a Thursday, 17 days later. And those usually we get about 50 to 70 people signing up for it. And so that group of people, we just commit to upping our formal practice. And that's what formal sitting practice is. It's like we've put aside a 30 minutes or an hour or whatever you put aside. And then for that time... There's this term in Buddhism called homelessness. It's kind of a provocative term. And, you know, even before the time of the Buddha in India, there's a real cultural, you know, habit, I guess, for certain numbers of people to leave behind their homes and become kind of wandering spiritual practitioners. And not only that, there was part of it was this. Uh, like even people when they got older, if they lived, you know, back then in the, in the day, people didn't live as long. 
But it's actually a lot of people didn't live long, but those who did live might live as long as someone here. And so the, if you got to 60 and you could do it, you would give your inheritance at that point, you give everything away, you'd leave the house to your you know, kids, your oldest kid maybe, and you become a wandering spiritual practitioner, a yogi as they're called, right? So we even, sometimes if you've been on some of our retreats, sometimes we use that term, like people on retreat are called yogis, not someone who does hatha yoga, asanas, I mean they might, but that's not part of it. Yogi means somebody who is undertaking spiritual practice, right? So there's this, so this is this uh, theme we want to explore, like what would that look like? What could that look like? How could we experiment and see whether it's helpful, useful for us? So not to make it into a should, like so I can fit in at Common Ground and actually one-up the other people I'm talking to. Well, you did two days, I did a three-day retreat, or I did a nine-day retreat, or whatever we might say. But just to kind of see its function, what happens? Why are people into this? What does it do? When we intentionally undertake simplicity, when we intentionally let go of some things for a while. I mean, it's really interesting. Like a lot of the retreating I've done, even when I wasn't practicing as a monk, I didn't eat much after the midday meal, right? And, and sometimes not much at anything, you know, just a little honey in my tea or some juice or a piece of fruit or something like that. And it's not like food is bad, but it's a long stretch between noon and 11 o'clock at night or whenever you go to sleep, you know? And if there's n- your only entertainment is a meal and all you're going to do is have a cup of tea with honey in it or something. And it's just like, it's so interesting how dependent our heart has become on like, okay, I can get through the day because there's this, this nice sense experience. Okay, oh, I got that. You know, I got to dinner. Oh, well, when I get my work done, I can watch the show at 9 o'clock, you know. Oh, I get to go to bed, you know. I don't want to get up, but I get my green tea or I get my coffee, you know. Or get to at least check the news out before I have to. So we, we sort of like that carrot we dangle in front of us to kind of make us, make it tolerable to live our life. And the more we do it, the more dependent we are on dangling a bigger carrot, a juicier carrot, right? <coughs> we get really dependent on, you want me to do that? You know, you want me, then you better deliver life. You know, we start. It's like this deal with the devil. And then we get more and more dependent. Like I said, the Buddha has a very powerful sutta where he talks about this. Some of you have heard this because it's quite well known. It's sometimes it's just referred to as the second arrow. So people have heard this teaching. They know. They even use that phrase, oh, this is the second arrow. So the, the, the general overview is when you're a human being, all the time you're getting shot with arrows just difficult experience will show up. And unfortunately, some people live in places where there are a lot more arrows than other people, right? So when you think about you know, people living in war zones or people being oppressed because of the color of their skin or because of their gender 
or because of they're an immigrant or whatever it might be, but everybody gets arrows. And the interesting question is, what do we do when we notice we've been shot with an arrow and we wore a sweater and it's a really hot day, you know, and there's no going home, right? We just got this heavy clothes on, right? We could get really angry at ourselves for not checking the weather, and that's the second arrow, right? It's bad enough wearing wool when it's 87 degrees out, but then to hate ourselves or to whatever, that's the second arrow. Now, here's the interesting thing about this, this talk the Buddha gave that was recorded you know, way back when, passed down for about 500 years orally, these discourses, and then eventually written down around the second century or the first century or so um, before the Common Era. Anyway, this, this discourse, it's what's so interesting is because we don't know what to do with these arrows that we bump into, somebody insults us or the conditions, external conditions aren't the way we like, we've got physical pain, whatever the insult might be, because we don't know the practice, which is, okay, it's really unpleasant. Can this be okay? Can I open to this? Can I be intimate with this? What do we do? Well, if it's going to be this unpleasant, what pleasant thing can I turn my attention to to make this unpleasant thing manageable? That's what we do, isn't it? It's like, oh, I had such a lousy day and people were being so you know, weird or bad. I'm going to get some ice cream. You know? And it, well, you know, it's not perfect, but it's at least something. So we don't like the unpleasant, totally understandable, and we don't know what to do with it except to run to pleasant. So then that skews our mind around pleasant. So the first thing that happens is the mind is skewed around unpleasant. The mind, which means deluded or not skillful around unpleasant experience, which basically means that the mind wrongly assumes that running from unpleasant or not liking unpleasant modifies the unpleasantness. It doesn't. It leads to the second arrow, right? Having to run away, having to go th like this to unpleasant doesn't make it go away. And that move we call aversion or fear or not liking is itself stressful. And it just compounds itself. And then, because we've got this reaction to unpleasantness, what we're calling aversion going on, then the heart, the mind gets even more desperate on relief, so it has a skewed relationship to pleasant. It's more dependent on pleasant. It amplifies the gratification of pleasant experience. Pleasant experience is gratifying. I mean, there's something we feel, that we experience, when the things that we experience as pleasant happen to us, right? Oh, nice. You know, we walk into a cool room on a hot day. Oh, that feels nice. But when we're running away from something unpleasant, the delusion in the mind, the ignorance in the mind, imagines the, the, the gratification of getting what we like. We imagine it being more than what it actually is. And that is stressful, actually. 
and then it causes another thing to happen. Because we don't like, we assume that, basically we assume that unpleasant experience is somehow dangerous. But you know what? A lot of unpleasant experience isn't actually dangerous. Like even something like grief, losing somebody you love. It's really unpleasant. But it's not dangerous for me to actually let that feeling move, to really feel the pain of loss. It's actually enlivening. But delusion says it's dangerous, so turn away from it, which makes the mind more dependent on pleasant, which makes the mind ignore neutral experience. That's the third piece of this. Right? You see how it... So the mind ends up being diluted about every flavor. It's diluted about unpleasant, thinking it's dangerous. It's diluted about pleasant, thinking it's going to save me. It doesn't. Right? We've had a lot of pleasant experiences. They've not any one of them have, have gotten us out of the woods, you know, like to that place where we're finally okay forever, right? And because of these two things being off or skewed, the mind ignores neutral experience. So so much of our life we're just disconnected because most of our experience is neutral. It's not strongly pleasant or strongly unpleasant. Like my shirt against my skin. I'm just not there with it. Or even hanging out with people that, you know, we might have a moment of when we see a good friend, the initial moment might be pleasant. You know, I haven't seen you in a while. So nice to see you. I mean, it's an authentic feeling. But in a matter of 20 seconds, it's a neutral experience. It's no longer nice because I already had that moment. And now it's just, oh, yeah, you're still here. <laughs> and it's not bad, but because we've got this habit of running from unpleasant and thinking that pleasant is going to fix me, we don't have time to notice all the neutral, which is most of our moments with our kids and most of our no- moments with our loved ones and friends and most of the moments in life, like when we're walking from the car to the store. Well, it's neither pleasant or unpleasant, so I don't have to be here. It's not relevant. And then we start feeling disconnected. It's kind of a deeper kind of unpleasantness, right? Sometimes we call it depression. And then we get more dependent on some, something jazzy, another cup of coffee, another provocative news story to read. We get more dependent on political rage about injustice. Not that we shouldn't engage the injustice in the world, but a lot of us feed on the juiciness because we feel dead because of the cycle I'm talking about. And it just repeats itself over and over and over again. We become intensity junkies because we're running from aversion and because we're disconnected from neutral. And we need something to feel alive. But we get so dependent on pleasant experience. But pleasant experience, even the best of it, is ephemeral. Think about our peak moments of pleasant experience we've had in our lives. Where are they now? Where is the residual of even the best experiences you've had in your life? There's really not much left to them. Even the memory gets old after a while. We've kind of worn it out. Oh, that was, you know, too many times trying to extract the last bit of juice from, from a nice experience. And it's not like bringing up past experiences is bad. It's the dependence 
because the Buddha says in this discourse, the heart doesn't know any other way to be with the ordinary unpleasant experience, but to run toward pleasant experience. But now we have another place, another way to be with unpleasant. And that's why we go on retreat. We're on purpose creating an environment, whether it's just for our 30-minute morning sit, that's your retreat, right? You put aside some time in the morning, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, whatever you can swing in your life. And that's your retreat. And then we have this, you know, and it's a relatively simple environment. You know, we find a way to sit that's relatively comfortable. We're not trying to torture ourselves. So if you're really stiff in your hips and knees and legs, sit in a chair at home, maybe a straight back chair, not an overly comfortable chair, so that you're supporting yourself in both being comfortable and being alert. And then we basically meet our teacher, right? The teacher is the present moment, things as they are. And we, don't, we never meet our teacher when we're living our normal life because we're basically jumping from one distraction to the next, absorbing the mind into this drama, absorbing the mind into this, what should I have for lunch, what am I going to do when I meet this person, Now, we do need to bring some thought to these things. So I'm not condemning planning or thinking through things like where we should go for lunch and things like that. It's really a matter of whether a lot of that mental activity isn't about that that thought needs to be thought. It's more about i got to do something to fill in the space or I'm going to see and feel what I've been running from. So that's when we sit. That's why, did you notice tonight at the beginning of the set, I suggested something like, you know, don't start practicing. Because sometimes even our meditation practice is a way of avoiding just being right in the middle of our life for what's here. And we're not stopping the mind from thinking, but, but there's that reflective awareness. Okay, so this is what you're doing. This is what the mind is thinking. Like what does the mind do when there's that quiet but unshakable, not judging, not condemning presence? What's felt in that space? What comes and goes in that space? And are we willing to stay interested in that space? This is what we only learn this when we retreat. We can spend our whole life, I mean, just to be provocative, we can spend our whole life running from our life, running from the way it is, always thinking we're going to get there. You know, when I renovate the house, I was joking the other night, oh, I guess it was when I was teaching the retreat out of Massachusetts last week, and um, yeah, we were just joking about like creating the perfect meditation space in our homes, you know, and it could take a lifetime to raise the money, to buy the house, you know, or to renovate the house, to get the right this and the right that. And then, of course, outside of the window that you have in your little perfect meditation space, you need the perfect tree. It takes some time for that tree to get to the perfect size, the perfect landscaping around the tree, and the right birds in the tree, 
in the right season. So you, can, you need the window open so you can hear the outside sounds. You don't want to be cooped up in the winter. You know, so just the right season. And then you've got to do a lot of yoga and you need a lot of body work so you can sit in just the right way. And it's basically this, some version of postponement. You know, when I get my act together, when I really get my problems done, balance my checkbook, get my retirement figured out, you know. I mean, all these intractable things, like figure out my role in racial injustice. We, I had my racial affinity group today, this uh, bunch of us white, now I have to say older men, straight men, meeting to kind of look at our stuff. And, uh, and it's just, I, I mean, I'm totally into it, doing the, doing the work that I can do. But, but we don't want to postpone putting everything down. So no matter how engaged we are, maybe some of you are raising kids, maybe some of you engaged in social justice issues, maybe some of you are engaged in having enough money so you can actually retire or having a nice garden, or whatever it might be. But it doesn't matter who we are, everybody has a way to explore this homelessness, this concept where we put down our duties as a human being in terms of our relationships, our duties and responsibilities, even the duty to survive. In a way, that's like that formal time that you go on a Buddhist retreat or that you sit in your home and meditate. It's like at that, for that 30 minutes or for that weekend retreat or nine-day retreat, it's not about physical survival, like building a bigger castle, putting money in the bank, you know, making your body healthy. I mean, you're not going out of your way to make yourself unhealthy, of course, and it might turn out to be really helpful for your physical health. But you're not your... You're learning to put down those responsibilities for a time. I mean, you still eat, of course, and sleep, but you're not obsessing about getting into shape or obsessing about, you know, jobs or this. And if you do, that's just something being known. You just turn it into the practice. You're looking at the heart when you're not absorbed in those activities of being a human being with duties and responsibilities. And it's a very particular spiritual medicine. And you see it in every religious spiritual tradition. It's not just in Buddhism. If you look at all the different forms, I mean, of course, they'll do it differently. But there's always some place for reflection or contemplation, some quiet place where people have stopped, you know, whether it's like sitting around the fire at night you know, it was interesting um, reading this book. I've mentioned it a few times in my talks, uh, just because it's a really provocative book by, uh, last name is uh, Harari, I think it's pronounced. He's an Israeli professor, history professor, and he wrote a book called Sapiens. And it's just a fascinating book about the evolution of humankind, the history of humankind. But anyway... Um, he talks about this movement from being hunter-gatherers to agricultural society. And, and it's like one of those things that once it happened, it's like no going back. 
but the ramifications. Because when we're, we were hunter-gatherers, when humans were hunter-gatherers, you couldn't accumulate too much because you had to carry it with you, right? So it put real limits on like possessions, <laughs> like how many shirts you're going to have, right? And the other thing, when you settled down and had land, then it's like you had to protect it. So you needed to kind of, like enough of you, so that some of you could be the guards of your land. And you had storehouses because you can't count on the weather. And then there was that sort of accumulative we- accumulating wealth that could be taken. But when you're hunter-gatherers, I mean, they might be able to take your bag of roots or nuts, you know, or some dried meat. But it wasn't, it wasn't like 20 years of accumulated capital. Right? And then you needed accounting systems and lenders, right? And all these sort of structures. And the other thing about agricultural society he talked about is when are you done with your work? There's always something you can do on the farm. My parents both were raised on farms. A lot of my aunts and uncles were farmers who we would visit. There's always something to do. It never ends. But when you're a hunter-gatherer, it's sort of like it's dark. You know, we're not really going to find any roots now. Let's sit around a fire and talk. And they, you know, I mean, as much as they can, historians and anthropologists, they kind of have looked at these different societies about the amount of work versus play and kind of uh, social activities. And you know, agricultural societies, not so good. And it just that also leads allows for a lot of oppression. You know, it's not that. In hunter-gatherer societies, there isn't a hierarchy, but there's sort of a way of uh, working. The, the bands are smaller, right? And the kind of cohesion, and it's like not as easy to sort of see someone else as different. But in the more structured agricultural societies, you know, you could have slaves. You can have people who are, you know, who own and people who don't own, people who just work and get enough to eat, to continue working. So, you know, that's a little bit of an aside, but the point is that we are trapped, all of us, in our own ways. I mean, some people here are more affluent, more fortunate than others, but in different ways. Even if you're an, if we're an affluent person, we're caught in these chains of the way we think, the way we worry, the way we obsess about what we need to be happy, the movies we need to see. I mean, even on that level, like where you're not just trying to hang on to your job or hang on to your life or whatever it might be. We're, we're caught in this machine of becoming, we say in Buddhism, becoming somebody, getting something, getting rid of something. Right? The, this... Uh, entanglement of our likes and dislikes and wanting to become and then wanting to be done with. And so when we, as we understand this practice of retreating, of putting it down, so reflect on some of these things that I've said tonight when you sit, first set. Don't rush into some technique. Give yourself a few minutes and just contemplate putting it all down you're not a hungry beast right now. You're not a, a 
kind of a, a sexual beast that is looking for a partner if you're a single person or a different partner if you're in a relationship or fixing your relationship if you're in a relationship, right? Sort of that uh, necessity of social or social connections. We're putting all that down for a while and we're just letting everything move. Sensations move, emotions move, thoughts move. So we're not repressing, sitting and retreating. It's not about repressing anything. It's actually just the opposite. Screws are open, or screws are loose, doors and windows are open. Everything's allowed to move. We're just not acting on anything. We're just seeing it. The one who knows, the one learning how to be intimate, learning how to feel as things come and go, giving permission, and seeing what the heart learns in that space. It's such a unique space for human beings to inhabit. And we really want to cultivate a taste for it so that it's really hard for a day to go by where we haven't given this life a little bit of that space, that simple space of renunciation, of retreating, of putting it all down. It's only by putting it all down that we see what's in motion, that we really learn a little bit about what this is, what this activity of the body and the mind is. We always think we know what our life is, but we actually haven't created the necessary conditions to be able to reflect back. Oh, this is what's happening. This is what's moving. This is what's being felt. This is how it is. This is what the conditioned mind is. This is what it looks like. When we're entangled, identified with our thoughts and emotions and our actions, it's not so easy to see them for what they are. But when we're in this more simple space of presence, mindful presence, mindful awareness, then we get a chance to actually learn something. So I'll leave it here. There's a little bit more than 10 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from a few of you, your own experiences of retreating would be very interesting to hear about. Your own fears, beautiful experiences in your sits and retreated experiences, difficult experiences that have come up for you in those settings. Or, of course, any questions that you have about the talk tonight. And remember to point the mic like this right at your mouth. And it's always nice to hear people's names. So what comes to mind? Any thoughts, any questions? Since I have never been on a, a retreat, I'm just wondering what the general structure of it from day to day for like a three-day retreat or half-day retreat, what the structure is here at least, or at the prairie farm. Yeah, well, prairie farm, The uh, we use that word prairie farm because that's the town in western Wisconsin that the retreat property is near, and we like the sound of it, so we call it Kamagam. Common Ground Retreat at Prairie Farm, but for short, here in the community, people generally just refer to it as Prairie Farm. And by the way, you can get a lot of information about those uh, practice periods. So there is one actually coming right up for about 20 days um, before we actually start the renovation. So people can go out and check it out. There's still plenty of spaces. And all that information is on the website. And so there, it's it's semi-independent practice. So there's somewhat of a schedule but there's a lot of just open time, a little bit like I was suggesting, just a lot of space 
to sit and look at the sky, to walk in the woods. We have beautiful woods. It's quite hilly in that part of western Wisconsin. Great country roads to walk along. There's a sit early morning. I forget if it's, I think it's uh, either 6 or 5.30. There's a sit right before lunch, and there's a sit in the evening that everyone's expected to be at. And then there's a recorded Dharma talk in the evening from, uh, you know, pe- people usually on the retreat choose some of the talks from dharmaseed.org, a really wonderful website of teachers in this tradition. And there's a once during the day in a circle. And these often happen in our more structured retreats too, so we'll give you an idea. People just sit down and each person just checks in about how their practice is going. There's always a practice leader out there, not a teacher, but someone you know, who's been on retreat for at least 100 days and really knows what they're doing to help just sort of support the group. Take turns cooking. Everyone brings their own breakfast food. But lunch is the main meal. Somebody owns that, you know, and they'll bring the ingredients and they'll prepare the meal for the people that are out there. And then we always make a little bit extra, so there's always leftovers from the last few days for people to eat for dinner. So we don't cook at dinner, but people eat as much as they want to eat from the leftovers, main meal during the middle of the day. Yeah, so that's, and we have a really good library, so study is okay. Now, when you go on a more formal Buddhist uh, retreat, insight meditation retreat, then there's a lot of, you know, depending on the particular teacher, but basically people are alternating between periods of sitting meditation, periods of walking meditation, periods of sitting meditation. There's usually instruction and Q&A in the morning and a talk in the evening, small groups. Usually every other day you have a small group where you have a chance to ask questions in a group of maybe five to ten people. And... Uh, yeah, and there's usually some mindful movement like yoga or qigong once during the day. And the, the retreats are done in silence, generally speaking. Now, you might need some functional speech if you're helping out in the kitchen and you have a question for the cook. You, you don't, you just ask. But if you don't need, if there isn't a functional reason to speak, noble silence. And we're really, it's sort of a neat thing. One of the important things that really help with this practice is feeling safe. It sounds really simple, like just to be mindfully aware and let things move. But at times, at least, it's very difficult practice. It's simple, but it's very challenging. And one of the things that really help it is the safety we get by being in a harmonious community, you know, around people that feel like are doing the same thing, care about this practice in the same way. And are really, yeah, just uh, supportive of what we're up to. So that community feeling is really important. It's sort of funny. It's ironic even. We're doing this thing that in a sense is very personal. We're bringing the awareness and turning it back toward the mind. So we're doing this very personal thing in community. And it really matters that we do it in community. So we spend a lot of time both at the retreats at Prairie Farm, but also the more formal Buddhist retreats we do five times a year, residential retreats, to build community. You know, how we start the retreat, just the different elements. So in a way, just like the activity of the schedule, and we take the precepts, it's called. It's just this commitment to non-harming, to being loving, kind, forgiving human beings for each other. 
just to build that energy of safety and trust that we're in this together, we're doing this personal work together. That's why we have, I don't know if you noticed, the graphic for the center. We have, it's a very traditional symbol, actually, for the Buddha. They did these statues, you know, you see all over the place of the Buddha. That happened hundreds of years after the time of the Buddha when Greek culture, because of the invasion of uh, Alexander, right? You know, he went through that part of the world, the Buddhist part of the world. And in the Greeks, well, they were into statues. So the indigenous cultures, Buddhist cultures, thought, we need our statues to compete with their statues. And you can see some of the ancient first statues look a lot like Apollo and the other Greek gods or whatever. You know, They have that same kind of Greek features because they were competing with the invaders to try to hold their culture together. But before then, you know, for whatever that was, you know, in the centuries before then, the symbol that was used was either an empty seat, which is sort of interesting. That would be a whole other talk. Like, why would Buddhists use an empty seat to represent the practice or the tradition? But more common was just the footprints of the Buddha. Like, if there was a human being that has woken up and become wise and kind, well, we can follow the footprints and have the same insight, the same understanding. If one person can do it, other people can do it, right? So that's the symbol that we use. You maybe notice the sign up front and on the newsletter, we have the footprints of the Buddha. And the tagline underneath says, walking together in the footsteps of the Buddha, right? We each have to walk it. Nobody really can help us walk it, but it really helps that we're walking it together, that we're in it together, right? And this is sort of one of the important things of these retreats. It really is obvious at the end of the retreat, you know, just how close we are to these people. We don't even look at them that much during the retreat. You know, we try to keep our gaze. Because, you know, when you look at somebody, it's really, then all of a sudden the noble silence, the not talking feels very weird, right? So we kind of give each other space, even though we might be sitting next to them in the dining hall. We're just sort of, we know they're there. We sense them. You know, and it's okay to look around, but we're not like purposefully trying to catch people's eyes. But at the end, even though we haven't been talking, we haven't even been looking at each other, we feel so close to each other. But we might have all kinds of differences in terms of our lived experience. But we have this shared experience of having a mind and body. And you know how it is. We're not that different on the inside. I mean, both in terms of biology, you know, if I just kind of blended each of us up, you couldn't tell the difference between. And it's even ter- true in terms of genetics. You know, we always think uh, about cultural differences, but these are all learned things. There's not really difference based on you know culture, race, ethnicity. It's real and it's not real. I mean, I, these systemic problems are information systems that get passed down through culture, racism, sexism, class, right? They don't exist anywhere except as information, cultural information that we pass along. So we break through that to some degree. I mean, it's not perfect at all because there is this common denominator, which is there is a mind here, a conditioned mind, and there's awareness. There's this activity of the mind and body, and there's awareness. And this is actually where we all meet. 
right? We all have a knowing mind, and we have thoughts, sights, sounds, sensations, emotions that are known by the knowing mind. And that's kind of the territory of the retreat, is to hang out in that space. And the schedule and the teachings and the other structures of the retreat are really about supporting, creating the safety and the, and the appropriate information to hang out in that space. Something is being known. Something is being known. All the meditation techniques, all the teachings, loving kindness practice, it all is in support of this very simple thing. Oh, this is being known. What we call sometimes recognizing the present moment. Yeah, thanks for the question. Anybody else? Anything quick before we end the evening? Yeah, last comment. Uh, my name's Joe. Um, I haven't been practicing for that long, probably like four, like five months. Like, and I was like, when I started, it was like brand new. Um, one thing that I've had trouble with is transferring like what I've been doing in like formal practices to like my everyday life. And I feel like a lot about like what you were talking about tonight was about that. Yeah. And I think one thing that I have trouble with is that like, I feel like everything I do in like, or I feel like my daily life is just like almost like pure striving. Right. Or like, I don't know. And maybe I'm getting hung up on like the vocabulary of it, but how do so I like just noticing that show is pretty amazing. Like just that transparency in the group of you saying, it just seems like a lot of what's happening in daily life is striving. Yeah. Right? You need awareness. You need some kind of space of awareness to even be able to acknowledge that and that that's relevant. Okay. Um, but like how, I don't think I want to like be a monk, right? Like what's mm -hmm. like the in-between of, or how can I start to fold it into my life? Like the idea of like not striving to do something. Yeah. Or how do I, maybe it's even that I'm seeing striving as like a negative thing. Yeah. Because all we need to do is acknowledge it honestly. Then you're practicing like a monk or a nun, right? Because that's, they have striving. But the question is, do we identify with it or do we see it? Oh yeah, they're striving and it feels like this. And a lot, I'll just end with this, you know, being aware of the body really helps our, us take our practice into our daily lives. Just that awareness, there's a body here, it feels like this. Because if we have some intimacy with the body, then we'll be aware of what the mind is doing too. Because it's all here and now. It's hard to be intimate with the body without also noticing emotion, external, internal phenomena. And the body's relatively concrete, relatively easy to develop the habit of being mindfully aware. It's not easy, but it's relatively easy to do it. But we need to end here. It's 9 o'clock. We'll just take a second, let go of the words. Coming, everyone. Really nice to be here tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.